0: Well, good morning to uh, all our dear friends at uh, Cape and Ray Evangelical Church. I have to admit this is the way I'd intended that we would uh, meet, but uh, under the present circumstances, at the last minute, we decided that we should uh, try it uh, this way. I think back to the first time that I came to uh, uh, Cape and Ray Church, and uh, it was back in uh, September of 1978. Can you imagine? Anybody remember back that far? And uh, it was about a month before we were due to go to Africa, and it was the last church that I spoke in uh, before we set off. And uh, I was kind of wondering at the time whether I should drive all that way from Leeds, but uh, the Lord kind of impressed upon me that I should do that. And uh, I came there and was very warmly welcomed. And uh, I remember a week or two later, having a visit from uh, John and May and Edwin and Doris, and uh, they'd asked if they could come and visit, and that the church had had an offering and brought wanted to bring a gift to us. And uh, when they arrived, we were in the midst of packing and getting ready to go. But the generous gift that came was just what we'd been praying for and what we needed to be able to uh, make, make the trip. So it was one of those uh, God moments where the Lord intervened in an amazing way and our relationship with the church has continued for the last 42 years and we are so thankful and humbled by the investment the church has made in us in very practical ways through giving and through uh, praying and so we again rejoice that we have this opportunity although as i say it's pretty second best I was looking at my records, and the last time that I spoke at Cape and Ray was on the uh, 14th of May in 2017, and it just happened, it was two days before I was due to fly out to Ivory Coast. And myself and some colleagues here, along with some friends, went out to the northern part of Ivory Coast, where in the Palica people, the villagers had sacrificially saved and worked, to put up the four walls of a building that would serve them as a church. And, uh, they'd wondered if that could ever happen. They're very poor people living, in uh, villages, a lot of mud huts. And, uh, we, it was a huge challenge to even think about it. And, uh, we said, well, if you put up the walls, we'll have a team of guys who will come out and we'll put the roof on for you. And so we went out there and, uh, I have to admit, it was perhaps the most challenging thing I've done in my life. I'd forgotten how hot it was out there, and uh, that age had caught up on me. And uh, we worked and worked and worked in 95-degree weather. uh, The guys who were on the roof putting the tin on, it was 140 degrees up there with the reflection from the tin, and you could easily burn your hands. You had to wear gloves. But anyway, the Lord wonderfully undertook, and... uh, Uh, we saw that achieved we all came away absolutely worn out then last year uh, a similar group of us went out again to uh, pull the floor and this too presented a challenge because of the lack of equipment but again to cut a long story short the lord worked in amazing ways that enabled us to get certain bits of equipment just at the right time that helped us Managed to do that, but the most inspiring thing about the both these trips was to see the remarkable work that God has done amongst the Yipanaka people. I remember surveying in the early days when there were no believers and today There are hundreds and hundreds of of believers and for me the great joy uh, of sitting with them to worship the Lord together was uh, one of those indescribable uh, happy uh, moments for us so Again, thank you for all your help all your support over the years. Here in uh, rural Lincolnshire, at this time of the year, it would be impossible to not be aware of the impact of farmers harvesting their grain. I set off on Thursday evening to go to Tesco um, to do a click and collect about 10, 10 11 miles away from here. And I'd only got into the village, and in the dark there I could see these lights approaching, yellow flashing lights, and uh, I realized that the road was fully occupied by the vehicle that was coming towards me. And so I tried every which way to find some way of getting off the road, and managed to do that, <clears throat> to witness a combine coming by, the reaper at the front end was uh, going by, and then the the massive combine that uh, followed it. and Then behind it was a tractor and a huge trailer for collecting the grain. And then the, the queue of traffic that was uh, behind it that obviously couldn't get by it. And uh, I just thought again of the fact that here in Lincolnshire we have our own Lincolnshire traffic calming devices and they're run by the farming community, which certainly slows all the traffic uh, down. At some point, I'll get to chat to um, our local farmer, and I always find these chats very interesting because he will tell me what, you know, kind of did well, what didn't, and you automatically think when, you know, he's had a really good crop that he'll have uh, made a lot of money, and I always find it interesting that he says, yeah, it was a great crop this year, but uh, the the prices of the grain went down, and so it's not going to be so profitable, and then other times he'll tell me that uh, the peas didn't do so good, the cauliflowers did. He grows about 19 million cauliflowers of all kinds of varieties, white, uh, yellow, purple, and ships them all over Europe. But, uh, yeah, it will be a time to discuss and discover, you know, what has been the real impact of this year's harvest. Here in this passage that we've just read in John 4, the Lord Jesus uses the image of harvest to draw the disciples into a deeper understanding of spiritual realities. In the course of Jesus' teaching, he often drew on agricultural scenes and things in order to draw his followers into an understanding of spiritual truth. I'm sure you can uh, think a lot of yourself, the parable of the sower and the Issues there of the soils in the seed's development. And then there's a parable of the tares in the wheat, how the enemy comes and sows weeds amongst the wheat, and it's determined that they should be left until harvest time, and the angels would take out the uh, the tares and remove them, safely allowing the wheat to, to grow, and that it would be bound up and, uh, and burned. And then there's the parable of the mustard seed. Then think about the uh, parallel in Matthew 19 of the tenants caring for the vineyard. And Jesus, you know, often used these simple illustrations from the agricultural time of the Jews. And here in John, in chapter four, and verse thirty-five, and again in Matthew chapter nine and verses thirty-seven through thirty-eight, it is the sight of the crowds of lost people, the issues in Christ using the image of ripened grain in fields to represent lost humanity, and the need and the opportunity for reapers to gather in the harvest. You see, it is ready either to reap or to rot. Why does Jesus say here to his disciples? Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. It was firstly an appeal to reflect on their perspectives. Perspective has to do with how we view things, situations, facts, and, and then judge their relative importance. It gives us a, a framework, a reference to evaluate. And here Jesus was leaving Judea for Galilee. And it says there in verse 4 of chapter 4 that he, he must go through Samaria. And then in verse 6, it says there that, that Jesus, therefore being weary from his journey, was sitting beside the well. He asked the Lord of Samaria for a drink. And then through the interchange with her, he leads her to an understanding that he is the Messiah. And through it, she comes to trust him as a savior. Now, in the meantime, the disciples had gone into town, Uh, to buy some food. And they were dumbfounded when they came back and saw Jesus talking to a woman. Just then it says his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Meanwhile, it says that, that the disciples were urging him to eat. Rabbi, eat. And as the disciples took in the scene before them from their perspective jesus needed food he needed physical nutrition it left him wearied then christ uses the occasion to challenge the disciples perspective how were they evaluating what they were seeing and how were they judging what was important and where lay their priorities you see they were they were more focused on their sandwiches than this woman's salvation in verse 32 jesus said i have food to eat that you don't know about the disciples then were wondering scratching their heads wondering if somebody else had been there and fed him but jesus says in verse 34 My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, the great aim and object of his life was not to cater to his bodily, physical, material needs, but to do the will of the Father. There was never a moment in his life where his perspective became dulled, dimmed, or diverted he was always about the father's will he was almost mindful of his mission to save lost men and women and boys and girls and that his father's purposes for the world were global in their extent that most famous of verses in john three sixteen says we've got so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, and verse 3 was, that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here, Christ Jesus, who Matthew introduces as the son of Abraham in Matthew 1.1, Here in the Lord Jesus is the fulfilment of that promise. And that promise through him would be made possible. This was Christ's perspective that distinguished his mission to mankind as always purposeful, always passionate, always progressive, and yet always in the present. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The disciples were taken up with the material aspects of life. Food, clothing, harvest is months away. That's sometime in the future. And it's easy for us to become you know, so engrossed in the day-to-day material things of life that we miss the importance of the needs of precious souls around us. I remember a few years back going to my uh, granddaughter's wedding and my son Roger accompanied me. We flew from a local airport at Humberside to Amsterdam to Schiphol and then from Schiphol we took the long 10-11 hour flight to San Francisco. And just before we went down to uh, the local airport i quickly looked at the seating arrangement on the plane and i was hoping to be able to you know, get an extra seat a bit more comfort a bit more luxury uh, for us and at the last minute i saw towards the back of the plane there were three seats together and they were unoccupied so i moved where roger and i were seated to the back rows and to these three seats so we boarded the plane in in Amsterdam, we took our seats at the back, and we had this extra window seat. And uh, we were watching everybody come on the plane to see if anybody would take this seat. Nobody did. And when we announced that the doors of the plane were closed, we went, yes! We've got an extra seat, we were so excited that we beat the system. So, here we are. The plane sets off, we're about 10 minutes into the flight, and I noticed about six rows in front that the uh, stewardess was talking to a lady in her seat next to the window, and, uh, and then the stewardess kind of walked a bit further down to where Roger and I were sitting, and she started looking at the window seat next to me, and I began to feel distinctively uncomfortable and wondering, what is she going to do? And then the next thing i see the stewardess go back down and she signals to the lady and she gets out of her seat and she comes up to up towards us and the stewardess said this lady's going to take that seat by the window and i went oh no and our roger says dad be quiet you're an embarrassment so we let the lady in and She sat down and she said to me, she said, I can see that you're very unhappy. She was a Dutch lady that spoke very good English. So I said, no, I wasn't counting on this, so I'm, uh, you know. Anyway, she said, look, I paid as much as you did for a flight, and my media setup wouldn't work in that seat down there. And so I asked if I could be moved. So here she is, fiddling around with the media seat, and she couldn't make it work either. So I thought, what in the world? So I kind of leaned over and, and said, do you need some help? You know, so she said, y- yes, I-, I can't get this thing to work. And I'm wondering, what in the, why in this is all this happening? And then it suddenly dawned on me. She's been moved here because God wants me to speak to her. And here you are, more interested in your comfort than talking to her about things eternal, Anyway, I thought, oh no, I've really messed up here. So I started really sucking up to her and taking an interest in her, asking her what she did for a business and she was involved in the pharmaceutical industry. So I started talking to her about pharmaceuticals, having a bit of a chemist background myself and so on. And eventually she really warmed up and we really began to have a, a nice stimulating conversation. And all the time I'm hoping that sometime she's going to say to me, and what do you do? And finally that moment came. And when she said it, my son leaned over in front of her. And he said to a lady, you have no idea what you've just asked. And then he looked to his watch and he said, how many more hours have we got until we get to San Francisco? And I was able to wonderfully share my own testimony speak to her about her spiritual needs and uh, was a most wholesome conversation i was absolutely persuaded that this was one of those moments where god was speaking into her life but at the beginning i was more interested in my comfort than this lady's soul and here is christ in the samaritan uh, field here containing the souls of men and women. And his attention is taken up with people rather than his appetite. And it says there in verse 39 that many Samaritans from that time believed in him because of the woman's testimony and many more believed because of his word. Now I think and reflect on some of the things that we've been involved in over the years. I I can look back and think after all the laboring and plowing and sowing and watering uh, there in Northern Ivory Coast, that today, there are no believers. God has done a remarkable work, and there are those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've seen this wonderful harvest uh, of souls. Amongst the laurent, where there, there are now more than 20 churches and over six 100 believers. Amongst the Palica, where there are churches now in at least five of the villages, and again, hundreds and hundreds of believers in the uh, village of Tugbo, the commoners, a, a Muslim tribe, and again, the believers there who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we rejoice in this wonderful harvest of what Christ has done. But at the same time, I can't ignore the fact that there are fields around in our world where there are people who are not being served by the gospel. And here we are trying to uh, establish works among some of the Islamic peoples of of North Africa, or working among some of the Hindu peoples uh, of India, where people live without any opportunity. And knowing, you know, that God's purposes are global that they embrace the world that god intends blessing for many women of all the world's people groups so that the lord jesus christ can be served and glorified amongst all the world's peoples i have to ask myself you know how am i contributing and participating in accomplishing god's global purposes how are we as the church in the united kingdom in the 21st century Building on those foundations laid by those who went out from these shores uh, to win men and women to Christ. You know, men like Hudson Taylor and C.T. uh Mary Slessor, William Carey, Henry Martin, Bishop Hannington, John Patton, John Williams, James Gilmore, Gladys Ellen, Alan Rose, we have many, many more. We have this appeal to reflect and judge how is our perspective today with regard to the world situation and God's global purposes. Secondly, we have here this appeal to the uh, disciples to re-evaluate their priorities. As they saw the situation, the Lord needs food. they were missing the whole purpose of what God was doing amongst these Samaritan people. And he was training these disciples to lift up their eyes beyond just their Jewish context. The Jews, were, they were extremely ethnocentric. They disdained all the non-Jewish nations and people. They had a very parochial view of life. And so Jesus here is challenging them to reevaluate their priorities, to prepare them, to lift up their eyes and see that God's concern is for them, yes, but also for the whole world. Somebody wrote, a shift has already taken place in the minds of many church leaders, and the shift is to the priority of domestic church planting. At the expense of strategic international needs foreign mission is still on the radar of churches but it tends to exist as a one more christian service experience of the 50 christian things to do before you die according to the joshua project which is a a, a christian organization that gathers statistics on the uh, world situation they tell us that there are still, you know, two and a half billion uh, people without access to the gospel. That involves over a billion Muslims, 800 million Hindus, two and a half thousand distinct uh, uh, people groups. You see, if the goal of history has been God's revelation himself to bless people from all the world's people groups through the proclamation of the gospel, is there not still a challenge to us here in the UK to lift up our eyes and to see that the fields are still right to harvest, to reevaluate our priorities, to reevaluate our commitment to God's global program, to be engaged and involved in training our young people, particularly in evangelism and discipleship and encouraging them to think about God's global program. You see, when evangelism and discipleship is the DNA of the church in the home harvest field, it becomes a small step to move to a foreign harvest field. And they do the same thing of bringing the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember some years ago in, in, in Ivory Coast that there were five uh, of us out there. And it was interesting that we all come from uh, a particular youth organization uh, in England at that time called Young Life. And here was an organization that particularly worked with young people to encourage them in evangelism and, and discipleship and uh, getting them to understand the, the, the value of souls. And that was the, you know, life he lived at that time so when we were challenged about doing the same things overseas it wasn't that big uh, a deal here the disciples had their focus and priority on themselves and the needs of Israel but Jesus was preparing them to reach the world and he's calling upon them lift up your eyes and see yes the ministry is going to start in Jerusalem but it's going to move from Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, and so again, I, I challenges we need to reevaluate our priorities. So Christ's appeal here to his disciples was not only to an appeal to reflect on their perspectives, to reevaluate their priorities, but to reconsider their passion. Jesus says here in verse thirty four, "My food." is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Christ would declare triumphantly from the cross, it is finished, his redeeming work had been done. He had conquered sin and death and his ministry in those last 40 days was on the emphasis of taking this triumphant message to all the world's peoples. And so he says, then Matthew records on one occasion, him saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore are make disciples of all nations. Mark records the Lord Jesus saying, go to the world and proclaim the gospel, you know, to the whole of creation. And again, Luke in chapter 24 records, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. But the tragedy is that the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection are unknown. They're not available to many of the world's people's groups. They remain without God's word, without the church, without witness, without hope, living in sin, without remedy. Summed up in Ephesians, without Christ. David Brainhardt, reflecting on his short life, he died at the age of 29, after five years of missionary service amongst America's native Indians, he caught tuberculosis and, uh, uh, and died from it. But he said this, he said, I would not have spent my life otherwise for the whole world, I cared not where or how I lived all the hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. And here, David's life echoed the passion of his Savior. John Keith Falconer, perhaps somebody we've not heard of before, he was an aristocrat, he was an intellectual, he was a, um, a, a cyclist of uh, international uh, uh, re- repute and renown. He worked in, in, let's suppose today, Saudi Arabia. He said, I've got one candle of a life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Again, his life echoed the passion of his saviour. We've all perhaps heard of Hudson Taylor and his ministry in China. He said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. Again, his life echoed the passion of his Savior. C.T. Studd, who went to China, then to India, then finally to Africa, said, if Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. His life echoed the passion of his Savior. These men, they planned and lived their lives convinced of God's global Program. John Stott said they were global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. And all too often, you know, we plan and we build our lives on the things that God is silent about instead of what He is clear about in His Word. Some of you, what well, elderly folks like myself, will uh, remember uh, Billy Graham has been a great evangelist and uh, he was a great speaker, and back in 1984 he was addressing a big conference of university students, the Abana Conference in the United States, and he made this comment, he he challenged the students, he said, what will you be like as a Christian ten years from now? Many will be walking with Christ and serving him in various capacities around the world, but for others there will be a tragedy because ten years from now, they will have lost their burning zeal and love for Christ. Not necessarily because they wanted or because they set their heart in rebellion against God's will, but because they set their life by the world's agenda. And then Christ and his great commission gradually dims. We need to align our lives with God's global purposes, both at here, at home, and then considering those countries around the world who are far less served by the gospel message? Am I biblically informed and recognize the enormity of God's global purpose? Am I biblically involved in God's global purpose, involved in praying and, and, and giving and uh, supporting um, mobilizing folks? Am I biblically inspired by God's global purpose? John Piper made this comment, he said, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshippers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his, and for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join (coughs) join his global purpose. Does that reflect my passion? Can I say and echo the words of the Lord Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work? Fourthly, As God's representatives today, is it time for me to again renew my my pledge to him? Frank Wharton wrote that very challenging hymn, facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee, to go and make thee known. You see, the the mission of the church, his missions, whether it's home mission or overseas missions, God has one mission, all peoples, God has one method, to use all believers. The whole world requires the whole church to be involved. If we really understand God's global purposes, We must also understand that God gives to every believer the opportunity to be involved in this program. Every believer can find a way to live with vital strategic significance in God's global purpose. The harvest fields of the world. It was John Mott, he was the secretary of the uh, Christian uh, volunteer movement, student movement at the beginning of the 20th century. And he made this comment. It is possible for the most obscure person in a church with a heart right towards God to exercise as much power for the evangelization of the world as it is for those who stand in the most prominent positions. I think of all those letters where Paul writes to churches around that part of the world that he was involved in. In every letter, he begs the churches to pray for him. Because he believed that their prayers would make a difference to the fruitfulness of his ministries. It's interesting to look at that, you know, when you read the epistles. Can I be involved to that degree in seeing God's purposes around the world through prayer? You absolutely can. I think of John Wesley, who talked about, he said, the world is my parish. He said, for me, it's not how much of my money will I give to God. But how much of God's money will I keep for myself? And again, you know, we need to evaluate. You know, how do we use the resources that God uh, gives to us? Uh, Can I, you know, give an increase, perhaps renew my pledge to give more for the furtherance of the gospel? As an organization, we're thankful to all God's people, you know, who Give sacrificially uh, to see the gospel advance to the ends uh, of of the earth. And uh, I am truly thankful for myself, for all those who have supported us individually, churches have supported us for some 40 odd years now. And we we thank God for his provision throughout uh, that time. Do we need to renew our pledge to increase perhaps our giving? think about the moravian church for every four believers they sent out one missionary i wonder you know is there a church anywhere that for every four members has sent out a missionary i i do remember years ago coming out from the Garth evangelical church and um, one day we had a visit from a very well-known preacher in the country and Roger Carswell went up to him and started pointing out all these people that had gone out from Garth um, to missions around the world some to South Africa some to um, South America Africa Asia and he challenged this pastor from this very big church that he said how many people have you sent out from your church and uh, the pastor said well, we support you know, a lot of, of folks but You know, but how many have you sent? And, you know, in in years gone by, it was normal that churches were sending out people from their own community uh, to be involved in World Mission. Uh, Sadly, the number of folks going from our country today has really, really uh, shrunk. And yet the, the harvest field is still huge. The needs are still massive. As we think about this wonderful time of the year, and harvest, I look out you know, across the fields and see the uh, the bales of straw I hear the combine at night, working day and night to, to bring in the harvest field I reflect on this image and think about the great harvest field of the world and how the Lord Jesus you know, drew his attention of his disciples look, he says, the fields are white unto harvest and they're there to, to reap Or to rot. At this harvest time, the challenge is fresh to reflect on our perspectives, perhaps to reevaluate our priorities, to reignite our passion for His will, and then perhaps to renew our pledge. To examine ourselves and say honestly before God, "All right, Lord, I believe You're speaking to me about this. I I want to uh, respond to You in a positive way." Well, I pray that God will continue to bless and use you in that uh, part of the world there. And uh, thank you again for the opportunity of sharing this way. Perhaps next year God will allow us to meet together and we'll be able to speak face to face. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Frank.